0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going out into space and somewhere even weirder. Our guest this week is long awaited. Hayley Piper is the Bram Stoker Award-winning author of Queen of Teeth and a whole smorgasbord of other horrors. This year alone she's published two books, the psychological space horror Your Mind Is a Terrible Thing, and the Dark Fantasy Horror Noir MashUp. No Gods for Drowning, which is out in two weeks from Polis Books. Haley and I take a whistle-stop tour of both, stopping to discuss the lure of fantasy and the call of horror, the art of concise world-building, zombie capitalism, police brutality, and why queer characters don't need an agenda to be worthy of inclusion. Also, it's important to remember that sometimes a good story It's just a good story, and sea monsters can just be sea monsters. (laughs) You can support this show by subscribing and leaving a review, or if you want bonus episodes and stuff, you can join Talking Scared Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up. Many thanks, and I will put in a good word for you tonight during the blood sacrifice. Otherwise, off we go to a place of dark wonder. It could be a spaceship... It could be a whole other world, but the sky above is vast and full of terrors. Let's talk scared. Haley, welcome to Talking Scared.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I've been talking about having you on the show for an age, pretty much since the show <laughs> began. Finally, the stars have aligned and here you are. How are things with you?
1: Ah, uh, they're pretty good how are you
0: I, i'm very well that's thanks for asking no one ever asks about me thank you for asking <laughs> uh, yeah no no i'm good i saw an old friend today uh guillermo del toro followed me on twitter today so yeah, yeah things i saw are, that yeah i'm kind of still on the ceiling about that one to be honest i've, I've sent him a message saying please come on the show so let's let's see what happens
1: <laughs> i hope so
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. I want to talk about Cabinet of Curiosities, this Netflix thing that sounds amazing. But anyway, listen, enough. We've got a limited (laughs) amount of time. I've got a lot to cover. So let's talk about you. Anyone who is anyone in the horror community knows who you are. If anyone has ever dipped a toe online, they'll know you're a very prolific writer. This year you have published two books and I want to talk about both of them. They are the novella Your Mind is a Terrible Thing, and your novel, No Gods for Drowning, coming out very soon, I have to confess that whilst I smash through the novella at pace, I'm still about a third from the end of No Gods. So apologies. No, that's fine.
1: (laughs) We weren't going to talk about it that far into it, I'm pretty sure anyway. No.
0: Yeah, indeed. Normally, I try and read everything so that I don't ask stupid questions. But at this point in the year... (laughs) the reading schedule starts to catch up and I have one day off and suddenly I'm in the weeds. So yeah, I've got, but it's quite nice because I've still got things to learn. Um, but it is a very complex book. So yeah, lots to talk about.
1: Yeah. You've got some big things still to come.
0: Oh, good to know. Cause I've, it's been pretty epic already. <laughs> um, so I can't imagine where it's going to go. Let's start there. Let's um, let's start with your big baroque fantasy noir. Can you tell us a little bit about No Gods for Drowning?
1: Um, without setting up the world, really, the story is essentially um, you know, in the beginning, men were prey, and uh, the gods have been gone for ten years from this world, and a serial killer is trying to bring one of them back in order to save everyone from the encroaching seas and the. Monsters that used to hunt mankind before the gods first showed up. Um, so she's killing people and there's detectives who, sh- who are looking for her. And meanwhile, people in the city are trying to stop the flooding, stop the monsters. It's, it's a lot going on at once. I, I boil it down to essentially they have a problem and everyone thinks that they know the way to solve it. But no one agrees on what that is and catastrophe results.
0: Well, many kinds of catastrophe. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I described it on on Twitter as um, a sort of post apocalyptic Discworld because it's in the kind of ruins of this city. Valentine is a secondary universe that you've created. Yeah, um, I I hope that comparison to Discworld didn't offend you too much. Um, you don't. No, have to be I was <laughs>
1: I was a little worried that I was like, oh, I hope people don't think this is humorous.
0: It's it's very not humorous. It's a very kind of grim, dark environment. But it, I totally, I did it, get
1: where you were coming from, though, because um, it is not, it's not your typical fantasy world. Like, and I think, I don't mean typical. Like, fantasy is such a weird genre and that, you know, it's uh, it's the very meaning of the words. You can do, really do anything. And yet a lot of it still kind of walks in Tolkien's shadow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Terry Pratchett didn't do that. Um, He played with it, but he didn't really do that. And then like, you know, so that and like um, in the way Stephen King with the Dark Tower, he wanted to do a fantasy world, but he wanted it to be more drawn off of like the good, the bad and the ugly than, uh, you know, elves and dwarves and such. And in my case, it was um, I wanted to draw off of noir, but there's still this kind of weird second world, but also urban fantasy, but also it's kind of familiar, but not completely so, no, I totally understood that, like, that layer of the comparison. I was just, most people are just like, Discworld, having a good time, lots of laughs, a little philosophy, and I was just like, oh, boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, apologies for that. I'll, I'll, I'll correct that forthwith. This is not Discworld. It's not funny. There there are no walking suitcases. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. That that thing about walking talking shadow, I mean, I, I love kind of big epic fantasy, but it always makes me laugh. Michael Moorcock referred to it as pixie shit. That, that's what he called it, and <laughs> yeah no gods to drowning is very much not pixie shit
1: i still like the lord of the rings like i'm not knocking it it's just it's not that
0: exactly yeah like you say fantasy is so many things it's splintered in so many different ways now urban fantasy etc um i read an interview in which you said you once thought you would be a fantasy writer yes horror beckoned is this book your you kind of scratching that fantasy itch
1: Well, this is that start because I've had this story in different levels and not complete, but bits and pieces uh, growing since I was a teenager. Um, Like this this has been building inside for like 20 years. Um, And I think the fact that I couldn't write it before, one was obviously due to inexperience, but two was just because it couldn't be it couldn't be just a fantasy story. Um, it mm-hmm. needed to. It needed to live in dark fiction, um, and it couldn't be a dark fantasy in the sense of like uh, The Witcher or um, A Game of Thrones because that wasn't. That wasn't what appealed to me to write, and and it, it at some point it did come do- down to like, well, just write whatever you want it to be, and I think horror just couldn't help but come out of it. I just like yeah exactly like you ran the interview i can't escape horror and i think once i just settled into this is also a horror book it just got easier
0: well i was secretly pleased because i've i've gone on the record before as saying that i i'm not naturally drawn to the blending of horror and dark fantasy. I like I like the books you mentioned. I love you know the Dark Tower. I'm not obsessed about that stuff. Um, and I like when fantasy gets dark. But quite often, if horror doesn't take place in a universe I can recognize, I I lose the the kind of sense of threat. You know the immediacy of it. But but your world, that the city of Valentine in particular, is so closely adjacent to ours that I, it, it did feel like there was a real pertinent threat there. And I think that's because, you know, the world is so recognizable in its politics and its prejudice and its environmental problems. And obviously, you, you just said then that this this book's been in percolation for like decades. But how much were you intentionally kind of engaging with current social commentary?
1: Funny thing is, I typically don't intend to. I think it's just one of those things that can't be helped um, being expressed, um, at a certain point in the, just in that long gestation, like it wasn't going to be flooding, but there some point five, maybe six years ago, I kind of was just like, I, I want this to be islands. I I want it to be in the, in the ocean. I was like, well, then the threat must come from the ocean. I mean, and it's not like climate crisis stuff is, is new. Um, it's 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 become more mainstream, but you know this is stuff we've been warned about since mm-hmm. I was a kid, since before I was a kid. I mean, hell, I've seen the uncovering of newspaper warnings from the nineteen early nineteen hundreds um, that like, hey, this might not be a good idea with the you know the fossil fuels and such. And it's like, it's you know, it's it's something that I think is going to become more and more present in media and fiction right now but it's it's not like we weren't warned it's not like we didn't have any sign that any of this was going on
0: but the environmental stuff aside there are certain things in there i don't know maybe i'm seeing things that aren't there i often think i i do that i think i'm looking for kernels of truth that may not be there but there are certain details that to me felt like you were really dealing with really contemporary stuff so
1: for example yeah i was gonna say if you can give me an example
0: (laughs) Yeah so so Arcadia who is our well, one of our protagonists um and she, she she's somebody who works in flood management sort of crisis um management stuff and she had a history in law enforcement and she's adamant that she never wants to wear blue again after being involved in this awful event it's somewhere between like recent police brutality and something like the My Line massacre um and at the same time, it's a book about the unchecked power of gods. So I wondered if it, this was your anti-authoritarian novel.
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's hard because I have—I think—I think most of my work is anti-authoritarian. Um, that's kind of just how I how I've been. It's it's weird because as a child, I think part of it comes from me. As a child, I was like a, a terminal rule follower. I didn't really rebel then, and so in adulthood, it's been. I think coming out when it's when um <laughs> inst- instead of that to make to make up for lost time um I I will say I mean let me think I can't I can't be like no it's definitely not part of that. I don't think the book is trying to comment on that. That was more what happened with the police in Queen of Teeth um was more much much more um consciously okay consciously taking that into account i mean this is not recent police brutality like with the climate crisis stuff this has been going Mm -hmm. on on and on for you know the longest time especially at least in america i don't i don't actually know how it is over there but over here like i remember i remember being uh like 14 i think and trying to get one of my older relatives to understand um this shooting in new york city by police where they shot a black man 41 times was not was not just that this was a that this was a bad system that that there were so many problems and you know it's talking to a wall and I don't know where I'm trying to go with that just just that this it's not a new thing it's just that so I think some of this gets ingrained and so in writing a world you kind of can't help it but i also not that this takes place in our world but like the adjacent time period is kind of like 1900s noir stuff and Mm -hmm. for that time period and before every pretty much everything like crime fiction pre-dragnet was very much the cops are corrupt the cops are murderers the cops are brutal um and you needed characters like sherlock holmes for example to come in and be able to solve crimes in lieu of the corrupt police force. Um, and so I, I think, for example, like with Alex and Cecil being private detectives is kind of part of that. That's why like Lagoey in her city did not have to, she just was like, she just wanted blood. Like that mm-hmm. was simple, straightforward. And I think that that part is more of the law. Lo- I'm, I'm rambling at this point, but um, that, that part is more the largest system that, that that is what these gods are. That is what uh, certain kinds of societies demand. They just want blood. They just want bodies.
0: Right. Well, that, that takes me to the thing that I have found the most fascinating about this book right now, like I say, I haven't finished it. So this may be one of those dumb questions I warned you about. The setup is that these gods have disappeared and they've left a the world kind of in chaos without order, without governance. Now, There is one quote that I highlighted the minute I got to it. And and the quote is, the people of every city state wanted their gods back and some would burn their cars, homes and humanity in sacrifice to make it so. Now, I couldn't help but read your gods as kind of political creatures. And this, as I say, may be a stretch, but it felt to me like your characters desperate for their gods is kind of what's happened in populist politics across the world at the moment. Like we're all so adrift and so weirdly frightened by the amount of choice and crisis in our lives that we're desperate for some, I don't know, some charismatic authority to just take away this burden of freedom.
1: (laughs) I think, yeah, definitely. I think that I don't, I can't speak to everything, but I I do think that's a large millennial problem. Um, Speaking as a millennial, I think we, I, I feel like it's a little different for gen Z but I think our generate a lot of people in our generation really want someone to come in and and take up leadership to take charge and just kind mm-hmm. of fix everything um, and it's it's a hard concept to understand that we have to be the fixers we have to do it so I think that craving that kind of authority if you're craving that structure then you know, I think there are people who will go like, "I'll give up whatever to feel secure. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll break every everything I thought was good. I'll do, I'll go against it, whatever it is, just to feel like things can be stable again."
0: Yeah, because there's one city-state. Is it? Forgive me. Is it Tychion? Uh, Tychos. Ty- Ty- Ty-
1: Ty- 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 Ty-
0: Tycho, sorry, yeah, that were, it's basically the Florida of your universe because <laughs> they are, <laughs> they have just turned to chaos. They're basically just indulging in wholesale blood magic to try and get their, their city god to come back and take control. Right. And it it just, made, it really made me think, as you say, like, it's the, the world's greatest kind of mummy and daddy complex. We just, that we want some anchor, no matter, or rudder rather, no matter how bloodthirsty it may be.
1: Right. And, and and that's kind of one of the themes that the book is about, is about responsibility and choice um, and who wants that and who would do anything to get rid of it.
0: Yeah, because it is, I, I hadn't thought about that in relation to Gen Z rather than, I mean, I'm a, what do they call me, a geriatric millennial. <laughs> um, I'm on the cusp of Gen X, I suppose. But yeah, like w- mine is a generation in which we've, just abdicated all responsibility and we're terrified having to pick it up like you say but but gen z seem perfectly willing to pick it up and kind of run with it and 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 try and make the world a better place so i suppose in that sense it's quite a hopeful narrative
1: i i mean i i think that we millennials need to learn better about community in that sense and definitely the people in this book could do with that too Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um yeah on on another level it is a story and it is having to adhere to what these characters feel and think and believe um regardless of what ends that leads to i'm not really about uh writing a book with a specific message or a moral i have themes i want to tackle and it's more of an invitation to conversation
0: yeah so yeah i've gone way on in the kind of analogous deep end there so yeah forgive me let's let's talk about the story itself let's talk about craft actually because <laughs> one of the things i was impressed by is the world building it's something that genuinely fascinates me as both a reader and a you know aspirational writer because i, I have an issue with with brevity i'm not very good at it you do the world building fantastically in both no gods and the novella we'll talk about shortly but in no gods for drowning in particular there's so much backstory to cram in and it reminded me of really intricate lore kind of like you know things like Stephen erickson's malazan books or even the video game Elden Ring, which has mm-hmm. been ruining my r- life recently. Um, that kind of really obscure, very, very, very otherworldly lore that doesn't really have any kind of anchor in our world. and But you only had 400 pages to both map out that world and tell this multi-POV story. So what's your secret, Hayley? How did
1: you do it? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the I think the simplest answer is that I have that world in my head. I have it in notes. So, you know, when you're brushing up against a concept in this, like they'll mention like uh they'll mention some gods that don't really factor into the story or the direct story at least or like the other like they've got multiple different tiers of gods. I have I have notes of all of that. I have their family trees. I have all those things. It's just not something where I feel like it needs to be pushed into the story um like i don't feel like i I, you don't want to overload anybody
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um i think that the most important stuff in the world building is to have that foundation that you understand but the immediate stuff is what the reader really needs to feel what everybody's doing what how they're interacting what they're thinking what their what their opinions are honestly like because the a, a character's opinion about the world they're living in is going to stick with a reader, in my opinion, way stronger than just explaining something to them. Um, like uh, Cecil at the dinner scene, you know, he, he gets drunk and he starts ranting a little mm-hmm. bit about, you know, the situation with some of the gods. And I just, it I feel like it makes more sense to tell that through his frustrations than to have like a, long set of paragraphs they're explaining. So these were the dawn gods and these were their first children. And these are the one, you know, and all that stuff. And this is what goes on with the mothers. And, you know, um, I will say on the, on some of that immediacy, um, Chantel from Polis books, my editor was very helpful in being like, let's, let's bring out more of this. Let's bring out more of the culture. Let's bring out more of like, you know, what they're wearing, how they're, you know, what they're interacting with, things like that, because it helps, it, it's grounding it. Um, and especially in a world where you're mixing characters who are come feel like they walked out of a, a noir movie from the forties with the kind of, yeah, blood gods and things you, you'd see in like Elden Ring and you've got sea monsters, you know, you've got all these wild elements and it really needs to feel like something that people, if they were there, they could touch and understand.
0: Yeah, because I suppose it's about right th- those conversations and those anecdotes that, that that do the whole you know show rub and tell thing. I suppose it's about making those feel authentic within the context of the world, isn't it? You know, the, the, the conversation should feel like a conversation. Those people, there's a necessary shorthand, I suppose. You can't right. suddenly adopt a different tone sort of voice for a character right we're in <laughs> right. exposition mode right now. you don't want them it's to be like, to sound well, like as, them.
1: as you know from like you know when yeah. we were all in school as children blah de, blah de, yeah. blah like cuz that always rings as false when like you read it in a book or you hear it in a movie um and some of that shorthand does mean that you know you have to accept that somebody may not completely understand something right away and hope that they'll keep that piece of information for later It is a little easier with the prose because if a character is trying to work out a problem that relates to the elements of this world, like, okay, you know, how do you how do you get a God's attention? Um, You can kind of walk through steps you've already covered and it doesn't feel like Mm expedition. It just it feels like a recap, like, okay, so we went over this, this and this. And when you connect those ideas, then it can feel a little, you know, a reader who may not be getting it yet can be like, oh, okay, I get it now because because we've reframed it. But it doesn't feel like exposition because it's stuff that they've already um, encountered.
0: And that's why I, it made me think of Malazan. Although, you know, obviously Malazan is this gigantic thing that 10 books long, like whatever, 12,000 pages. So <laughs> again, it feels like a world in which these things are not really being explained to the reader. They are just... Part of the fabric of the of the of the existence we happen to be reading about, and it really does feel like that. And I mean that as a compliment. the the fact that this, this book is a challenge is is a compliment rather than a criticism because Thanks. it does feel like something that you ha- you are just being shown into this world, kind of without guardrails, and yeah. you have to kind of orientate yourself a little bit.
1: The the only other way to do it is to like have it be a portal fantasy and you mm-hmm. have some like fifteen year old kid from the eighties show up in the in the world and be like, Okay, so this you're not from here, so this is how this works and this is how this town works and et cetera. And it's just like I just didn't want to do that. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's literally what King has just done in fairy tale. Literally that. and oh, really? And he can pull it off, you know, like quite quite strange. I was reading the two books simultaneously, yours and his. And um, there are similarities in, in that they both. I'm, actually, yeah, I'm no longer under embargo by the time this goes live. So I can say <laughs> what I want. Yeah, they do. They both feel like these really lived in ruinous city states, I suppose, where there is a a, a kind of exiled ruling class that has to return. And and the law is in both your book and his is kind of drip fed out in a way that feels quite organic. Um but his book is much more, as you say, you know, like I think I recently compared it to his version of Connecticut Yanking King Arthur's court. Whereas <laughs> yours is very much just in the court at all times.
1: Yeah. Um there's there's room for for branching out. i mean this is one city state on one continent in this whole world like i've i've actually written a novelette um that takes place on the other side of the continent and i forget which city um it gets oh mis- really it's a city that gets mentioned a couple times but like that i don't know if that's coming out next year from uh, death's head press but yeah it's 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 nothing to do with any of these characters um It's just it's its own little story in one of the other cities.
0: Okay, okay. I mean, you you write so much that I don't know you keep. I know
1: it. I have been. It's not been announced yet, but I figure it's fi- it'll be fine by the time this goes up.
0: Well, before we move on, I do want to ask it. Normally, I start broadly and then go more detailed but I've gone in reverse this time <laughs> around. But in terms of where this story came from, I, you mentioned yourself you had loads of notes on on the culture of this world and stuff. I've also read elsewhere that you say that you you come to novels or stories almost accidentally with like this collage of notes that suddenly coalesce into a story idea is mm-hmm. is that what happened with no gods how did this how did this book come about i suppose what's the narrative from first genesis to publication
1: oh i don't know cuz again this goes back like 20 years and i have like big like i have big like black holes in parts of my memory from from large chunks of time um i think the best way to summarize it like you know there were some of the ideas when i was younger and then just over time and getting life experience and encountering different different thought processes different literature and such that you know a little idea would get added to it here a little idea would get added here so i guess On the one hand, that notes coalescing thing is true and just over a longer period of time and not really all of it written down until much later. But on the other hand, I did know from the start that there was a story here I wanted to tell, and that isn't always the case with those notes. Sometimes it's just a bunch of stuff that I'm like, oh, hey, this is a story. But this one, it was a story. And then when I'd encounter something that I felt relevant to it, just mentally would kind of just glue it clumsily onto it and worry about it later which is why i think it ended up being such a a genre stew um like i don't (laughs) think anyone going into stuff wanting to pitch things easily or have easy comps like you know to to sell something on would decide to do a horror crime dark fantasy (laughs) book because like it was very hard to explain to people what this was
0: there's no elevator pitch for this one, is there?
1: No, there's not. I mean, thematically there could be, and which is, I think, why we ended up going backwards because it was just easier to talk about that way. But yeah, on, as far as the story goes, it's like, oh, do I start off with telling you about Lilac and what she's trying to do? Do I start off with like, you know, 5,000 years ago, the Dawn gods, and It's like, well, oh, that's really clumsy. <laughs> like, I don't think people are going to like that if you start with that. But um, it, it is easier to start with people. But that doesn't yeah. always get the breadth of what's going on.
0: I think if you start with people, it, it it makes it quite an immediate story, which this benefited from.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the first chapter is lilac slitting people's throats. So
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was put very at ease by that. I was like, oh, okay, this is definitely a horror novel. Um, <laughs> but I think if you if you do the you know five thousand years ago a dark lord Rose, or the gods fucked off. Right. I think if if you do the whole Brian Sanderson thing, all of a sudden you are inevitably playing on this epic scale which you know even though this book has epic overtures it never feels like that kind of fantasy as we said at the start no
1: i didn't want that
0: by making it about people right from the start you 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 create a kind of limit to the story which i think helps it massively
1: thanks i i think that and 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 i will say you do get into some of that a little bit even in the first chapter but it's Mm -hmm. it's in the context of Essentially, reading someone their last rites before they die, before they're going to be murdered, and in that sense, it gets more like um, I don't know if I have a good example, but it's it's not the same as like a little title card before the opening credits of a fantasy movie.
0: No, yeah, they're all it's all illusion and and you know nod to these things, isn't it? Not yeah, I, I know what you mean.
1: Yeah, I, I was well, I didn't want to be like, well, I didn't I don't reference the backstory for like 10 chapters is like, wait, no, it's there. Yeah,
0: but, it's, <laughs> but it's not like a set. it's not prologue 10,000 years BC. Right, is, right, you know, right, right.
1: I mean, there was a time, I'm sure there was a time during the last 20 years where I thought, oh, that maybe I should start the book like that. But
0: yeah, I've had this idea for a fantasy book. It's the book I think about as I'm trying to fall asleep every night. You know, I'll probably never write it, but it's weird because I've been thinking about that since I was about 16. So again, about 20 years. And it's funny how many, permutations and changed. it's gone through as I've read more because it started when I was 16 as this kind of you know uber macho like men with swords (laughs) rescuing a princess who's been stolen by bandits who were who were probably quite racially problematic and and over the years as I've read more and been more educated and realized that those tropes are worn out it's become a very different thing in my head so I, I yeah I think a fantasy novel that's had 20 years of of percolation is almost certainly better than the one that would have been written 20 years ago.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, especially, again, when we're teenagers. We don't don't know anywhere near as much as we think we do back then.
0: No. The more you can bring that kind of mature gaze to this kind of thing, the better, really. Um, I'm going to ask kind of like a hinge question there before we move into your novella, but it's a big question. Anyone who who has encountered your work will immediately recognise that you really do play across the whole spectrum. You've written body horror. You've written kind of supernatural slashes. The first thing I I read of yours was Benny Rose. You've written possession (laughs) stories, which I haven't read because they freak me out. Uh, Worm and His Kings, which is now a trilogy, is is full on cosmic horror. And and as we've said, you know, No Gods of Drowning is, is something altogether different. Is that variety intentional? or is it just something that happens and do you have any interest in establishing a kind of hayley piper style of horror and and what would that look like
1: um i think the variety is intentional but not like i sit down with a chart being like oh what's what's the next subgenre i should attack um it is more of like you know the story dictates that i think that just comes from kind of not wanting to repeat myself and I, I do think a bigger challenge in not repeating myself would be to go back to a subgenre mm-hmm. and to do it again, which I, I suppose is what's happening with the Worm and His Kings since it's it's a trilogy now. The you know that the goal is don't make don't make worm two and worm mm-hmm. three feel like worm one. As far as a brand, I don't I don't think so. not myself at least. Um like I have certain things that are important to me for each book. Like I want it to be you know, weird and imaginative. I want it to have empathy. I want it to, you know, I I, I want to be honest with it and I want it to be queer. Um, but as, so that's for me is a brand myself, um, but different readers come away with their own thing. For some readers, uh, like I've, I saw this actually just this week. I'm like, oh, uh, Haley Piper, that cosmic horror author, Um, which is funny because to me, it's just, the one book. But because I've also, you know, I've had published like, you know, 80 something short stories. If somebody reads The Worminus Kings and reads like the like three of the other stories, like they read five of my stories and three of them are also cosmic horror, they're gonna think of me as cosmic horror. And then and I've seen this happen with other authors who like have a have a range of stuff there tackling some of them are like uh shauna mcguire for example to some people like she's she's that ya author but she also writes adult horror um you know so it's just it's it's up to the readers i suppose that perception yeah
0: that's perfectly fair enough and i mean no one gets to argue either way anyway it's your books it's just
1: right you could you could assert you can assert what you are that doesn't mean people are going to listen well, I mean,
0: I think largely it's a kind of redundant point anyway, either you write books that people enjoy or you don't. It's just that I, I can't <laughs> I can't think of many authors so early in their writing career. Because you've written a lot all those books I mentioned have been written in a very short window of time. I'm struggling to think of many authors who have been so prolific in so many different, you know, modes or subgenre or something like that. It, it just There's just,
1: just a lot I want to tackle. Maybe I'm an impatient person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, Well, it's, it's clearly working. Um, let's turn to Your Mind is a Terrible Thing, which I have completed um, and I enjoyed very, very much. But I also had my psychological issues with it. We'll get to in a second. Sorry if I should do this twice in one interview, but can you just give my listeners some idea of what this book is about?
1: Uh, sure. That one's a little easier. Um, you know, it's a space horror uh, novella. Um, Alto is communications expert on the, uh, MG yellow jacket, um, on a, which is a ship on a cargo run between planets. Um, they wake up to find that all the crew members have disappeared and something is aboard the ship that can uh, hack into their mind and uh, make them see and think what they want, Um, it becomes a struggle essentially to get to the head of the ship and call for help while also realizing they may have um, inadvertently followed a distress signal that led them into this crisis in the first place. And um, many twists and revelations occur along the way.
0: Yes, they do, and and everything you've just said, I guarantee, has made people think Event Horizon and Alien. And I'm just telling people right now, this oh, is yeah, this totally. is very different. I I know that's there, that kind of template is there, but this goes in some right. crazy directions. Um, I had such a good time with this book. Right, I I read it. In one sitting, <laughs> this is this is a bit oh, wow. this, this is a bit too much information. I read it in one sitting in a very, very hot bath at one in the morning. <laughs> and but I've got to say also, for a, a B-movie premise about a kind of ambulatory brain monster, it also really disturbed me. Now, I'm recording this interview the day before I do a whole episode with Gemma and Moore about horror and mental health. So sorry if this ends up being a bit repetitive, listeners, but I couldn't actually read Gemma's book because it was all about distorted thoughts and things that I can really do without dwelling on in my current kind of mental state. But I was already primed to be wound up because of this novella, because it's also about anxiety and distorted thoughts and all of those things. And and it seems to me there is truly something awful about an enemy that takes away our ability to perceive what is real and and what is not why did you what made you write about that it's such a disturbing concept
1: um on the surface level like just just and and this is the part where it's kind of just like you know we getting away from themes a little bit, is just like we writers want to have fun too. I wanted to write, you know, I wanted there to be brain monsters. Um, so it kind of just went like, okay, well, what would be, what would be an upsetting thing for brain monsters to do? Um, and then, you know, it goes into character. It's like, okay, so who would be the worst person to have to deal with something like that? It's like, well, someone with anxiety. And like, I have anxiety, I can relate to that. So it, it kind of was just a, a domino effect of, what would be what would be a terrible thing in this in this book
0: so it was was it fun to write was it a book that you enjoy or was it from a dark place
1: um I think I had fun with it for the most part um it's also for some reason I kind of noticed that I like something I do with second person so this is not a second person book it's a third person book but something i kind of sadistically or masochistically perhaps enjoy when I'm doing some second person stories is pick up the voice that, you know, your brain s- uses on you when it's being unkind mm-hmm. Um and just kind of let loose with it. And it's like, you know, and just have it let, let the narrative say all the terrible things to the reader essentially that you say to yourself. And so kind of going from there to your mind is a terrible thing i wanted to kind of play with that a little bit with alto and just you know the terrible things that their brain says to them and have an enemy that forces that mm-hmm. especially you know when you get to halfway through the book and you you meet the you know worse rendition of what's going on with the brain monsters. Yeah,
0: yeah because i mean well it starts with the line Inner snow flew from the bad side of Alto's brain as if their mind belonged to someone else. And that's as good a description of anxiety as I've ever read, because as somebody who suffers and I mean, I'm I'm very open about this as someone who is suffering quite a lot at the moment with a kind of stress and anxiety and, and and feeling like my my brain is not I feel like my brain is not working the way it should be, but I don't quite know what I mean by that, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, I understand.
0: Yeah, reading this book really kind of made me, I opened it and thought, oh, do I want to proceed with this? And then I was, (laughs) then I was really kind of put at ease by how, and I hope you don't mind when I say this, quite schlocky the first third is. yeah. I was like, "Oh, okay. It's kind of like a B movie thing. It, it's it's fun, yeah." And then you meet the messenger, and I won't spoil that for readers. But when i when that character, that device came into it, this, this idea of this this message, I I got really anxious because I thought if Haley is going to basically create this story in which there is some kind of thought parasite that is with you forever and ruin, that's going to get in my head. <laughs> And it's going to mess me up. So I was really kind of trepidatious about proceeding. And I'm so glad I did, because I think the book ends on a weirdly hopeful note.
1: That's what I wanted.
0: But it it, it was worrying getting there, because you really do skewer this idea of the human brain being its own enemy.
1: And part of that also, you know, it's one of those things where horror gives us a sanctuary to uh, tackle these you know, these dark thoughts, these, these scary ideas. Um, on the one hand, you have this anxiety and it is troubling and like so much like, you know, Alto is seeing their therapist and then, you know, less, less good idea, you know, seeing their therapist. Um, but I think that in the horror fiction context, for the my hope for the reader in some capacity is like twofold. One is the sense that your your body is yours. Your it is it belongs to you, mm-hmm. but also so does your mind. Um, but on the other side of it was if if you could blame exterior brain monsters for these anxious thoughts, that kind of makes it a little easier to me because it's less you doing it to you for kind of biological or chemical or whatever reasons Mm -hmm. and kind of externalizes it to this like oh you're doing it this this thing is doing it um at least in a fictional setting i don't know if that you know helps anybody but it just for me it was a little like almost kind of a little bit of a fantasy that way Mm -hmm. yeah um as if there was something you could Actually, get away from
0: completely, and, and I found that whole thing about body autonomy as opposed to sort of psychological. What's the opposite of autonomy? I can't think what. <laughs> anyway, yeah. you know, you know what I mean. um
1: Yeah, I know. Psychological
0: submission, maybe. I found that really interesting because that's something that, as somebody who runs to to deal with my own mental health issue, that's something I encounter. Like I use exercise as a way of of dealing with it, and it, it really works. I feel like I'm in control of what I'm doing very much. Um, But obviously, because of Alto's kind of non-binary status, that body autonomy takes on a a, a different level. Um, And I know that you include a a wide variety of queer perspectives in your fiction. Uh, And I've been very intentionally not loading this interview with kind of rehashes of all the questions you've been asked on that topic. Um, and, And I know that you said elsewhere that you don't, make a conscious effort to include queer characters that it's just a product of your your everyday worldview which I totally got on board with but surely in the case of Alto having read what I've now read that there does seem to be some intent and commentary in mind
1: i mean comment i i think it's twofold characters that comes naturally um that is just how i see things those are the people i interact with most that's who i am um you know, my, 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 like I'm around my wife most of the day she's bisexual. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's, it's just normal to me. Um, I know that's not the case for everybody, but you read a book, you get into author's head, you get into their worldview. Um, thematically it does have to be a little more conscious. Um, sometimes, um, I think sometimes it happens because I can't help it. Um, (laughs) It's, it is sometimes an impulsive thing that it's just going to be there. And the, the, the conscious effort at that point is whether you edit it out or not. With my first book, uh, my novella, The Possession, The Glasgow, for example, I've told people this before. Um, the main character is a lesbian. She has a partner. I had written that through the book, but I was new to all this and I wasn't sure how that was going to be received. And I ended up cutting uh, almost all of that all of the any all of the things that that indicated that except for like one line near the end um and i don't do that anymore mm-hmm. i'm very i'm very uh ugh, missing the word but expressive about it um in this case it, it was partly because the genesis of your mind is a terrible thing was that sam koyeznik the former owner of off limits press mm-hmm. uh texted me one day and was like you should write a space horror." And um, my initial thought was like, I don't have time for that. But then ideas started coming and it was like, damn it, Sam. Um, (laughs) So I was like, well, if I did one, these are the things I'd want to be in there. And I had a list of things and they all got into the book, thankfully. Um, But one of them was I wanted there to be some cyberpunk stuff. I really, um, a lot, not a lot of people seem to have heard of this game anymore, but System Shock 2 I think from 1999 was, is a game I really enjoyed and it had a lot of cyberpunk elements and it was a space horror uh, video game. It's like, I want cyberpunk and if I'm going to do a space horror. Um, But like one of the things with cyberpunk is uh, in a lot of cases kind of looking nihilistically at people changing parts of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm a trans woman. I don't see things that way. Uh, I think having control of your body is freaking awesome. Um, and if you want to, if, if the technology existed to modify it like wild, then I think people should go for it. And so I wanted, I, I, I wanted the threat not to be Alto having to make changes because it was, you know, of the situation necessarily. I wanted Alto to be under the threat that these things that were messing with their mind were going to alter their perspective on what they found to be a beautiful experience when they had their body modification surgeries yeah i
0: got that yeah um
1: so that is very intentional Mm -hmm. like um you i don't think you can just at least for me i can't just accidentally slide into this giant complex scene where they're seeing distorted versions of their surgeons and you know because as brain monsters approach Mm -hmm. um it's just But so that was very intentional because I didn't want to fall into that trap that I feel a lot of cyberpunk falls into.
0: Sure, yeah. I hope it doesn't make me sound a bit too kind of closeted or ignorant, but Alto may be actually the first truly non-binary character I've ever encountered in fiction. Um, By truly, I mean that, you know, they they begin with, with no gendered identity. Their birth gender is barely mentioned and hardly relevant. And importantly, the process of them sort of the, the, the thing that that they did to become free from the gender binary actually becomes the kind of strength, the, the, the thing in their arsenal that helps them fight back against the monsters through yeah. cyberpunk means that, you know, are more easily understood if you read the book. But
1: that, and you want it to be fun in that sense too. Like you don't want it. Like, what's the point of dragging everybody to space and building this whole thing and then not having like (laughs) robot parts and brain monsters? Yeah,
0: indeed. Well, and the other fun part, and I've got to ask about this, even though it's it's quite trivial in the story. But Zelany, this. This sort of robot <laughs> companion or wraith companion—these wraiths are, are sort of cyborgs using corpses, or as, as I like to think of of Zelene, you know, the futuristic version of Wilson the volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, wh- where did he come from? Because he, he, he's such a treat. <laughs>
1: um, I, I had the I had the wraith idea of of them like transporting the bodies, like that was already always crucial to the story. But I kind of was like. I wanted, you know, somebody to help Alto. Um, and it was going to, and, and like very quickly it was going to become a wraith. But I was like, okay, so what personality is going to be programmed into, into this thing? And I was just like, it was very much just so like, what would be the most fun for me to write? Like what, like, cause this, this is a very, um, it can be a pretty dark story at times. And Alto is dealing with a lot of internal stuff. Um, so I was like, you know what people at this point in time, they're not going to know the difference between old Hollywood, uh, stereotypes of like, you know, you know, I don't know, showmanship or movie making or whatever Broadway, like just mash whatever, like of this stuff together and like, just see what comes out and, it ended up being a really fun personality that came out. And I was like, Zel- "Zelini is like a lot of people's favorite character.
0: He's just wonderful because as you say, you give him this kind of old style theater hookster sort of personality. <laughs> um, so sort of, you can imagine awesome. Well, his voice almost. And like, as I was reading it, there's this brilliant thing where every time he encounters something, he he uses the metaphor of the stage to talk about it so like when when some of the monsters find him he's like wow harsh critics and things like that and i just kept thinking all the way through that you must have really regretted starting that because it must have been so hard to keep those metaphors going
1: oh no actually they, that was uh that was some of the easiest dialogue to write um I can be like it's funny because people don't think of me this way because like the you know I'm writing horror but I am a very silly person in my head sometimes and this just was you know kind of another outlet for that um, I, and it also like on another level it helped uh, it helped tie this back to earth. Mm-hmm. Because Earth is barely mentioned. Like, I think it's Earth mentioned, like, once yeah, in you... the narrative. But, like, Zelaney kind of brings up stuff that we're familiar with that the characters really aren't. I, I don't remember the exact example. But there's something that Zelaney says that late uh, past the halfway point that Alto is, like, didn't understand the reference. But, but Zelaney does. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. but yeah. but the re- And the reader does, more importantly. Yes, the reader yeah. knows what it is.
0: Yeah he's just such a, a a delight. He's like, I think he made reading the book quite a bit easier for me because it, it was, it was a tricky book in parts. <laughs> and like Zelainy gave me just enough light amongst the darkness to keep me going. Um, but to, I mean, we're, just to close a, another kind of piece of commentary, you mentioned that the bodies and, and we've said that, you know, Zelainy is composed of, of a corpse and cybernetics. And, you know, it feels like you're really going after capitalism in this book.
1: Oh yeah, definitely.
0: You know the thing—the thing that's being transported is bodies to be used as raw resources in, in the creation of robotics. It's kind of—it's like literally zombie capitalism.
1: Yeah, you no, there's you don't get to rest from work even mm. in death in this.
0: And that awful implication that, you know, some of these, these wraiths that are, you know, that they have retained some residual humanity that they have to have for them to work the way they do. There has to be something left in them.
1: No, it's said in there, like if they had to, the whole reason to use corpses is to to let the cybernetics follow the neural pathways that are already existing.
0: And and that, that may be the most horrendous implication of all.
1: But... But you just said you had such a great time because of Zeleny.
0: So, Oh, so am I Am I the exploitative? <laughs> am I the person doing the exploiting and here? That's
1: the, and, that's the, and that's, no, it's not, like, it's not like a one-to-one like, ah, look, I got you there. But I'm just saying it's not simple. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, now I feel bad.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's not even <laughs> <many> bad. <laughs> no, I just mean that it's the, it's the same kind of thing as with no gods, Mm -hmm. like thing there, there is not a simple, you know, level of Obviously a merchant guild in this world shouldn't be doing this, but, but, and it is wrong in that context, but for the reader, you can end up being complicit in things incidentally. And the thing is, it, does that make Alto bad for you for, for using like waking Zelani up and being like, you know, let's, let's, we got to get out of here. Um, should should Alto have just left Zelani like powered down? I don't know. Um, I mean, the the thing is on some level we're still living in this giant machine. And who's to say that like, you know, had things gone any differently with the ship and such, that Alto and everyone on board, like, you know, years and years later reached the end of a normal life, you know, would not still then see face the same fate as the corpses they were transporting there's always even if the market for these corpses dropped out space capitalism would still find something else to exploit with people
0: yeah it is funny isn't it that whenever we write about the future we never ever think of it as a utopian you know space is never utopian it's always run by (laughs) the jeff Bezoses of the future
1: i don't know how to think of it another no i don't don't think anyone does and that's one of those things i would like to think of it differently i think um, it's one of those things where science fiction, uh, you know, there's this misconception in some of the media that science fiction right. is supposed to predict the future. It's like, no, it's supposed to reflect the world we live in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Star Trek is the only utopian space
1: I, know. I can
0: think of, <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: I can't write that. Cause I'm a horror author. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, again, I, I comp the hell out that. I said this, this book felt like the best episode of Star Trek written by
1: JG Ballard. Well, and I definitely drew from that a little because I didn't I didn't want to make it realistic space stuff because I was like I'm going to get so bored mm-hmm. if I do that. I need it to be I need to have artificial gravity, I need to have weird tech. Like I'm I would get so bored trying to make it realistic.
0: Yeah. It's great. I really 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 enjoyed this novella very very much.
1: Aw, thank you.
0: Um before you go, I know you've had some very big news for for 20 uh 23. Uh, lots more new books including one via a trad publisher now i know that you're a major advocate of indie publishing but it must feel nice that titan are publishing a light most hateful
1: yeah I'm, I'm very excited about it um we're already talking about what to do with you know what the next steps are so it's just it's just very exciting to see and it'll be neat when it comes out next year
0: for those who don't know can you tell us a little bit about the story
1: I mean, it's it's my it's essentially my take on small town horror, I suppose, if you want to pin it to a subgenre woman lives in this small town in Pennsylvania. Um, One stormy night, essentially, I don't know how much I'm I'm allowed to say yet because I'm trying to remember what was in the uh, announcement. But um, it's a night of madness and monsters. Everything's gone haywire and she just needs to find her loved ones and escape this small town before it's too late.
0: Excellent. I saw it compared to Jeremy Robert Johnson's The Loop, which is one of my favorite books of recent years. So that, that bodes well for my for my liking. The of it.
1: Return meets Bunny meets The Loop yeah. is how we've been pitching it.
0: Well, I've read two of those books and adored them. So that, that bodes very well. <laughs> um, speaking of other books, Haley, can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to recommend Crime Scene by Cynthia Palio. Um, It's a poetry horror book that comes out in October. Um, It is essentially the telling of a police procedural from the point of discovering a body that has a a murder victim whose body has been undiscovered for years and has just been uncovered by some kids. Um, And essentially just it, things that would go flash by in a second of a law and order episode for example, each mm-hmm. poem takes that under a microscope, and it is it stops being something that it, it, it's a little bit of a commentary on the consumption of true crime and of, of just commodification of victims. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it becomes uncomfortable to sit with this stuff, you know, at a time like things that would fly by. It's just like, okay, the body is there, and then police come, blah blah blah. And it's over in two minutes. Here, you are sitting there, so it's like how long has the body been sitting here? How, you know, how, what are the Mm -hmm. feelings of these kids who have discovered it? And now this one person has to be called and then another, and like slowly bringing in the detectives and slowly taking apart what's happened to, to, to this murdered woman. Um, and then everything that follows from there. And it's just, it, it, it really rakes at your soul. Um,
0: well, you sold it to me. Yeah,
1: <laughs> crime scene by Cynthia Palayo. It comes out in October from uh, Raw Dog Screen Press.
0: I really need to get Cynthia on the show. Um, because yeah, l- she's great. L- like yourself, she's someone who I've been aware of since I started this show, and um, I've just been following her kind of upward trajectory. So, yeah, I need to uh, in- invite her on. So that sounds like a great reason to. because I haven't dealt, I haven't handled poetry yet either on this show. So that'd be a nice, nice little sideways move. Yeah. yeah. Um, and horror poetry is great. Well, I, again, I haven't read enough, so yeah, I, that's that's that, <laughs> that's the excuse I need. Uh, last question, Haley. It's the standard one. What truly scares you?
1: Mine is going to seem a little juvenile, but I don't care. I'm honestly a little bit still scared of the dark. Um, I, I I purposely push myself to go de- go into the house like without turning on the lights, partly because I don't want to wake up my wife, but also because on some level, I feel like I just need to keep facing it, but it doesn't really get easier even as the years go on. And somebody told me i watch watched too many horror movies. Um, I don't think that's true, but um, <laughs> there's still a part of me that's just like, hey, what if like something just came like screaming out of the side hallway as I was walking past or, um, you know, what, what if this, what if that? So like, you know, in the, you can't see what's in the dark. You don't know what's there.
0: You are far from the first person to say they're scared of the dark on this podcast. So, yeah, don't <laughs> don't feel too juvenile. I've never been scared of the dark. but I think it's the only thing I'm not scared of. The dark and heights are the only things I can cope with. Everything else terrifies me. But, yeah, I, I think you're not alone with that one. So, thank you. Right. Thank you so much for the time you spent with me. I really enjoyed... The book and a half I've read so I'm going to carry on with no gods and see we all I need to know what glories are for a start these monsters in the sea I don't even know what they are (laughs) yet so I've got so much to find out yeah (laughs) I'm really happy that you are going on and on to bigger and better things and I can't wait to read the book from Titan next year but but for now Haley Piper thank you for talking scared
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Haley seemed understandably keen to move past my insistent attempts to inject metaphor into her novel. After all, No Gods for Drowning is a book about sea monsters and serial killers and violent gods, and I maybe made it sound a bit less extravagant fun than it is. But I am incapable of reading a book these days and not seeing political metaphor and commentary and I'm really interested to find out where the novel goes, because it's not fully like anything I've read before. I still maintain there are echoes of this world in there, especially in Haley's version of this fantasy police force. But there's also some China Mievel-esque anti-authority commentary, and even some Ursula Le Guin-style world building. but overall it's a very unique novel and voice. It's also quite dense and unforgiving. It's not at all what I expected, but I am a lover of fantasy, even if I'm not a lover of secondary universe horror stories. So I'll be sure to carve out some time to see what what happens in the end, and, well, I'll do that when I wrestle my reading schedule back into shape. As for Your Mind is a Terrible Thing, that's just a joyously crazy ride, and As you heard, it's both supremely schlocky and deeply profound, and and that's an intriguing mix. I really do, really do recommend you check that one out if you want a quick read that will make you think a lot more than you expect considering the cover. Hayley and I talked a lot about the psychological aspects of her story, and, and that means this episode segues beautifully into next week's. When Gemma or joins me for a huge two-hour chat about horror and mental health, amongst many other things, I think at one point we even get into the principles behind tearing down statues. <laughs> yeah, Gemma's book *Full Immersion* connects beautifully with Haley's *Your Mind Is a Terrible Thing*. It's almost like I plan these schedules. <laughs> yeah, in all honesty, it's a it's a happy accident. Speaking of comparisons, though, you heard me talk about similarities between Haley's No God for Drowning and Stephen King's fairy tale, which, do you know, is out today. <laughs> as many of you do know, because I'm smug as hell, I've had an arc of fairy tale for a few months, and I've been so excited for you all to read it. I'm going to say practically nothing, because perish the thought of spoiling anything. I will just say that now I'm no longer embargoed, it's utterly wonderful. For me, it's King's best book since at least Joyland. Maybe his second best of this century after eleven twenty two sixty-three. I can't wait to hear what you all think. To celebrate Fairy Tale, I wrote a comprehensive list, a ranking of all King's seventy-five published books. That's on the Esquire website today, and I and I think at the very moment this episode drops I'm doing a live interview with them. On Twitter spaces to answer questions about the rankings if you don't know about that you've already missed it but I think you can catch it later I'm away for a few days but as soon as I'm back I'll post links etc but if you do see that ranking article get in touch you know shout scream stamp your feet even maybe agree whatever but it's been an 11,000 word labor of love and agony so I do hope people have thoughts you can reach me to talk about that or anything else at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Instagram or Twitter at TalkScaredPod. If you want more chat, such as the recently released bonus stuff from Nat Cassidy, Michael Seidlinger, and Gwendolyn Keist, you can get that on Patreon. It's just a few pounds or dollars a month to sign up, and you get loads of stuff, and you help me keep this show on the road, so to speak. If you do, Well, thank you so much. Otherwise, I think I'm done for the week. Come back next week for that amazing conversation with Gemma. But until then, keep your feet dry, think kind thoughts about yourself, and worship only those who deserve it. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.